Let's go before the Lord and pray that He would illumine this text to the benefit of His people. Lord Jesus, this is Your Word. This is a Word that testifies to You. This is a Word that leads to life eternal. Lord, we are frail and oftentimes foolish. At the moment we believe we have got it all figured out, Lord, You reveal to us the great depth and complexity of Your character. You remind us, Lord, that we are creatures finite. And that oftentimes, Lord, our sin is able to delude even good, faithful Christians. So, Lord, would You illumine this text to us this morning? Would You help us to be bold and brave, to look into our own hearts and see and desire to see the sin that is there, to fight against it, to call it what it is, to be reminded that repentance is true and real and that we are able, Lord, to walk in newness of life because of what Christ has done and because of how the Spirit continues to apply those benefits into the life of believers. Lord, if there is any in here this day who do not know You, Lord, would You awaken their hearts even this morning that they might see You, that they might come to know You, and that they might spend their lives in service to You. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. If you would turn with me in your Bibles. We are continuing our study in Ephesians. We are looking at the very last two verses of Ephesians chapter 3. We're looking at verses 20 and 21. This is God's Word. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God endures forever. Amen. He is able. Doubt no more. That's a refrain from the great hymn, Come Ye Sinners. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. I think one of the greatest struggles of Christians is doubt. We doubt. We're just not sure. We resonate with that man who cried out to Jesus, Lord, I believe. Help Thou my unbelief. It is the heart cry of Christians. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We, we know this experientially. It is a struggle for us. So we cry out to God, Lord, take my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above. Because we know even as believers, even as people who have been called out, that our struggle 
our struggle, our desire to be faithful will only be accomplished as God proves Himself to be true and sure. And even then, even when we hear it time and time again, even as we open the Scriptures and see God declaring, I'm faithful, I'm great, I'm mighty, I'm able to accomplish it. Christians struggle with truly believing that oftentimes at the very time they need to believe it the most. And that's why we thank the Lord that He constantly gives us in His Word not only reminders of what He is like, but examples like the Apostle Paul who prays that God's people will know that He is able, that He is willing, that they will continue to pursue to be not doubting people but believing, courageous and strong. If we can remember back, for those of you that were here several weeks ago when we looked at that prayer that Paul began, the things he prayed for, many commentators say this is the most bold, this is the greatest prayer in all of Scripture, that what Paul prays for is just reaches to the heights that the living God, the perfect, holy, just, and righteous God would come and strengthen human beings so that they might be dwelt by Him. That's profound. See, if we really have a real understanding of who and what we are, even if you have a view that humanity is perfect and flawless, the fact that an infinite, incomprehensible God, eternal and unchangeable in all His character would come and inhabit a finite creature that has to begin to boggle the mind. And the audacity of someone to pray such a thing. See, something they don't think we really think of. Paul just praised God, come and inhabit us. And you would say, oh, but Dennis, Jesus already promised to do that. Yeah, but do you see that Paul is demonstrating belief that Jesus will do what He said He would do? Paul's demonstrating belief that God will do that. And oftentimes the Christian experience is one that we do not really believe that God will do the things He's promised. See, some of us in this room even now say, you know, my loved one, I've prayed for them, I've prayed for them, I've prayed for them, and I've prayed for them. And they're 75 years old. And they're just not going to change. He is able. Doubt no more. I can't tell you what He's going to do. I can just tell you what He's able to do. And what we need to pray and what we need to be about as God's people is claiming the promises of God and believing that He is doing what He says He will do. Now, if you kind of capture that, that Paul is praying this prayer, which is just beyond most of our thoughts or imagination, you then get to capture what he's then saying in this doxology. See, what he's really saying is, I've prayed this, but just in case you don't really believe that this prayer is something that ought to be prayed, just in case you think that I'm a bit audacious that I would pray this kind of prayer to God, let me just tell you what kind of God I'm praying to. Let me remind you once again of what this God is like. 
lest you think that this is something God can't do. And I also want to say this, this comes right as we're about to enter chapter 4, 5, and 6, where God's going to say, this is what God's people ought to live like. And let me just say this, I can't speak for you, but I'll at least speak for this pastor. If you read the latter part of the epistles and go, well, Jesus has done it, now I can get busy and I will do this. And you think somehow you will do this in your strength? You are a fool and blind. Mormons try to do the last part of the epistles. And if you believe they accomplish it, then you ought not be in a Christian church. The thing that distinguishes us from other people who seek to be moral is that we believe that it's only accomplished because of God who is at work within us and around us. God is able to make us live for Him, but let us never fool ourselves that we somehow are able to do this without Him. What we need to constantly be recognizing when He calls us as adults to live a certain way, when He calls us as spouses to live a certain way, when He calls us as children to live a certain way, the only way that will be accomplished is as we are boldly looking into our lives and saying, I'm wrong. I'm failing here. Lord, expose me more. Lord, give me the strength to remind myself that even as You expose me, even as You take me to the depths, You are able to redeem to the uttermost. Even that sin is not too great. Even that failing the umpteenth time doing that same thing. I promised myself I would never let somebody get me that mad again. I promised myself I would not... And there it is again. I promised I would not ever hit the horn again in traffic no matter how bad it got. Wow! Whatever your thing is, remember, what we need to come to is to be people who are brave and bold and are willing to look and see that God is able not only to convict, but to lead us to true repentance and to use us in this midst to minister and care for one another. So let's look at these verses and think through this. The first thing I want you to have three points. I hope they're memorable. No limit, no fear, no end. If you can remember those, that's what I think is going on in these verses. So let's look at no limit. What we see in this passage is, is that Paul believes in a God who is at work. He believes in a God who is not idle. He's not just sitting around twiddling his thumbs. He's not out eating bonbons on the Riviera. He is a God who is at work. He is not inactive or slow. He is accomplishing His purpose exactly the way He wants to. And as a result, Paul can say then this, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask, and think, Paul has just asked what many commentators say is the most outlandish, the most audacious request. And Paul now prays, now to Him who is able to do even beyond, immeasurably more, I mean, you cannot really capture this word. You have to kind of stack a bunch of English words up to capture what Paul is saying here. To God who exceedingly better than you could possibly ever imagine, to that God, you can't ask Him anything even close to what He's able to do for you. You can't conceive, imagine. Even with your sanctified imagination, you can't imagine 
what this God is able to do. Now think about that, men and women. If we start to get that idea, if we start to really believe that God is infinitely powerful, He is eternally powerful, He is unchangeably powerful, how does that begin to affect how we live? When we look at people around us, we think about our jobs, we consider our homes, does it change how we think about God? We think there is no limit to what God can do. He's able to accomplish it all. Now you might want to say, but Dennis, you know, there are all kinds of foolish requests. I mean, James even says the reason why we don't get what we ask for is because we ask with wrong motives. No doubt. I don't question that. But what I'm saying to you is, are you then afraid to believe that God can change your motives? Do we not believe in a God who is transforming His people so that we pray rightly? That we seek Him with honesty and integrity? See, when you look around in this room or when you look at this pastor and you say, well, I can tell you this is wrong and this is wrong and boy, it sure be good if they would do this and this. What I'm saying to you is I think that's really an attitude of disbelief. I don't really believe God can change that person. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and this is what he told me. He said, Dennis, your task as a pastor in your church is to be a living example of sanctification. Now, do you know how hard that statement was? <laughs> what my job is, is to basically live before you, warts and all, and you watch as God rubs off the edges, which many of you are very keenly aware are there. None more so than my wife, trust me. <laughs> the point is, is that any notion that somehow the pastor is this paragon of virtue without any flaw and is above reproach in every possible way is a fantasy and a fiction of someone's imagination. The flat out fact is, is that pastors are supposed to be and elders are supposed to be people that hopefully are further along the path than many. But, they, but certainly not further along the path than all. But their task is to basically stand before you and say, watch God change me. So see, if you stand there and you look at the pastor and say, what's wrong with the pastor? Why did the pastor do this? Why can't the pastor do that? The pastor might be frequently able to say back to you, how often do you pray for the pastor? Not just pray, God, would you make the pastor a better pastor? So that's kind of like praying for your spouse. God, would you change your spouse? Most of the time when you're praying that God would change your spouse, the real person that needs to change is not your spouse. It's you. You getting the picture here? See, what I need to pray is not that God would give me a different or a better or a more robust or whatever idea any pastor might have of his congregation. What he needs to pray is for that congregation to be more of what God calls the people of God to be. And what the people need to do is pray for their pastor that God is able to make their pastor more and more what God has called him to be. And notice how the whole attitude changes. This is a togethering. This is a one-anothering. See, what the able 
to do all things exceedingly abundantly well does is it changes us so that when we look at this person, we say, why does this guy change how he leads this ministry team? Or why does this person do this? Or why don't we evangelize more? Or why doesn't this happen or that happen? What we need to see, what Paul is saying to us is, is we need to start to become people who believe, first and foremost, that God is able to do it in our midst then we might begin to be people who will attempt to do those things even though they may seem insane to other people around us. I'm reading a book right now that once again took me to South America and reminded me again of the Foolish Five of which Jim Elliott was preeminent. The man who seemed to have everything the man who seemed to be able to do all things that were laid before him. He was a man of faith, had a great wife, had a new child. And what does he do? He goes to spend his few short years ministering to headhunters in the backside of nowhere. And why would God care about them anyway? He is no fool, Jim Elliot said who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You see, what Jim Elliot demonstrates, this is not about Jim Elliot. It's about the God that we all have that was Jim Elliot's God, who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we hope or imagine. That tribe was converted to Christ almost to a person because five men gave up their lives. Insanity, stupidity, foolishness are people who have become aware that God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we hope, ask, or can imagine. See, I've heard it said in the midst of this congregation, Dennis, we've, we've tried to reach out to some of these neighborhoods. Well, Dennis, we've done, and we've, well, this is, and this, he is exceedingly abundantly able to do all, above all, that we can ask or imagine. Why do we stop? Maybe God's not ready. Maybe we have to die before these things will happen. Are we willing to spend our lives so that it will happen? Are we willing to pray so that it will happen? Are we willing to believe that God is able? even if we don't get to immediately, temporally reap in the reward. See, I think too often Christians really are worldly in ways they don't really realize they are. I mean, why am I going to go out and spend myself witnessing to people who aren't going to listen to me anyway? Why do I keep pastoring people that don't listen to me? I'm not saying that personally for me. I'm saying that pastors feel this way. Why do, I, why do I keep staying as, well, maybe if I just go to a different current, well, maybe if I get into a different situation, well, maybe, see, we all, is it because we really have bought into consumerism? See, the real benefit is not the fact that maybe one day, someday, Tucson will be converted to Christ a hundred years from now when I'm dead and gone, but God knows that I spent my life seeking to see that reality take place. But am I willing to spend myself to see it take place? Am I doing all the things I could do to see it happen? 
And it's maybe really the real reason why I don't is because I don't really. The real reason is if I really looked inside my heart and was really willing to be bold and confess it is, I don't really believe he is able. Here's the good news. God doesn't wait on you. See, that's the great hope of this passage. Beyond all that we could ask or imagine, God's not waiting on you. He's working in our midst despite us oftentimes, which ought to give us more hope to love Him more and to be more faithful and more desirous to see that taking place in our lives and in one another's lives. But see, if we can all somehow come to a place where we're embracing that this is our struggle, do you see how we, it begins to draw us together rather than dividing us, rather than finding things, well, this is wrong and this is wrong. Well, if they get that correct and if this would happen. Rather, what we're saying is, look, how are we, what is the real call? And do we believe God is able to make that happen in our midst? Jesus said this about asking. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Do you believe that? See, do we believe this? That God will raise up a godly heritage in our midst? Maybe the reason why it doesn't happen is because we don't believe it will happen. We're not living our lives. We live in fear rather than in belief. The other thing I want us to think about is beyond all that we can imagine. What I want us to think about then is that we need to be people who start to imagine some big things. See, if God can do beyond all that we can think or imagine, we need to be thinking and imagining big stuff. Not man stuff, God stuff. Well, you see, the budget is this, and the membership is this, and the type of personalities we have is this, and this is. That's man stuff. I'm not saying that's not stuff that needs to be in some ways considered, but that's man stuff. God stuff is people being transformed. God owning the cattle on a thousand hills. God being able to do all that He wants to do in our midst. And if He doesn't, maybe we need to start asking why. And start confessing why. And start repenting our way towards God's greatness. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. The second thing that I want us to think about is this. No fear. You might say, that's great, Dennis. Boy, that's a rah-rah-ree. Let's kick him in the knee and we're out the back door and now we got to go hit real life again. Well, look at what Paul then prays. He says, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think or imagine according to the power at work within us. There it is. Have you forgotten what I've already prayed? It's almost Paul saying. I prayed that not that some pie-in-the-sky theology would somehow enrapture you and you go, woohoo, and out the door you go, but rather the reality of what God has promised and that I'm praying for you, you would start to see in your midst the power that is at work within you. What kind of power? Resurrection power. Power that raised Jesus from the dead. Power that saved 3,000 people in Jerusalem in one day. Power that enabled men to be sawn in half, nailed to crosses upside down, 
to go to South America, to go to China, to watch their loved ones be buried in front of them, to die of yellow fever and typhoid. That kind of power. Men and women, that's the kind of power at work within all believers. Look at what Paul says back in chapter 1. Over here, verses 19 and 20. He says, look at what he tells us there. He says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. There it is. That's the power that's at work in every believer. Now, what kind of things can that power accomplish? Is there anything that power can't accomplish? I'm not saying what all God will do. I'm saying, do we believe that He can do anything He wants us to do? That we can do anything He wants us to do? That if He calls us to something, He is able to make it happen. Doubt no more. If God wants this church to move forward and see people converted, why do we doubt? If God wants to use this church to be involved in mercy ministries, why is it always that we have all the reasons why that's difficult, why that's problematic? I was at a meeting the other day at Push Ridge, totally legitimate, because I'm a parent too of a seventh grader over there, and they're about to go with a more ministry down to do some work in Mexico. And of course, many parents and many parents who are officers in churches that I know about were asking very legitimate questions like, will our children be safe? Are there people that are going to be around making sure they don't overwork themselves? I was one of those parents who asked that question. I have a very exuberant daughter who loves to demonstrate the fact that she can outdo any boy on the planet her age. <laughs> and there are many other children that are the same way. Girls especially. And they kept repeating the fact that the girls outwork the boys. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm not sure that's a great idea. These are seventh grade girls. But here's the point. At the end of it, because I was preparing this message and I'm sitting there thinking about this pageant in my head and I'm thinking, why are we so concerned about what our children will happen to our children? Why is it that, that our conversation so steered continuously towards the problems with the mission rather than saying, this is a great mission? I mean, the whole program was basically geared towards a presumption that we were going to ask all those questions and what they really needed to continue to do is tell us this is a great opportunity for your kids. They will come back differently about how they process, about how they think about what God's doing in their midst. But what did we do? Now, again, I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned parents. I'm not saying we should be thoughtless and just say, sure, take my child and fling them down into Mexico without another thought. I'm not suggesting that. What I'm suggesting is, is that too often what we talk about is all the complications, all the problems, and not really believing He is able. He who is, work, is at work within you is greater than anything, including the one who is at work in the world. Do we believe that? Because to the degree we believe that, we begin to be people who doubt no more. No limit. No fear. Turn with me then to Hebrews chapter 13. I want us to look and see how Paul begins to flesh this out for us. 
Hebrews chapter 13, if you have your Bibles, if you don't have one, hopefully there's one there close to you in the aisle that you can snatch up. And if you don't want to turn there, you can just listen. This is what the writer of Hebrews says, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 13. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Why? For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Why do I not worry about money? Because God is our helper. He will see to it that we have what we need. Why do I not worry that the leaders of our church aren't all that in a bag of chips? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. My confidence isn't the fact that Dennis, and trust me, when Dennis gets up in the morning, his confidence isn't in himself. Else I would never show up to work. Trust me. Loving sheep is Christ's power. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not Dennis. It's Christ at work on Dennis, in Dennis, through Dennis, and through all of you to love one another. It's because of what Jesus is for us. It's because of what God has been and will be and promises to be for us that we have no fear. He is able. Doubt no more. The last thing that I want you to consider is this, no end. Paul's confidence now boldly declares that God's glory is a reality that will continue forever. Look at what he goes on to pray then in verse 21. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Here's the first thing I want you to look there. Do you notice that Paul does not say His glory be in the church when they finally get their act together, not like that church in Galatia or in Cappadocia or in Smyrna or in Laodicea, when that church finally gets its act together and that pastor finally gets really reformed and all the people get really serious about Christianity, His glory will be prevailing in the church. Is that what Paul says? Paul Praise and that doxology is one of confidence. His glory will be extending in the church, even if the church at Laodicea fails, and it ultimately did. Even if the church at Smyrna fails, and it ultimately did. There's not a church in Smyrna anymore. I mean, the city went away and the people went away, so there's not a church in Smyrna. I'm not saying God failed. I'm saying, and I'm not saying that they ultimately failed in the sense of people moving and taking the faith with them. What I'm saying is that the church cannot fail because God is determined to get glory for Himself. And He's not sitting there going, I sure hope that the people at Desert Springs do what they're supposed to do so I can get glory. He's saying, I will get glory and I will get it through those people as long as those people are gathered in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the truth. That's the bottom line. Do we need to be transformed? Do we need to change some things we do, both personally and as a group? 
Every church does. And we can get really particular and specific about some of those things and probably need to over the coming days, weeks, and months, and years ahead. However, what needs to be firmly implanted is that God's glory and His working in our midst to get for Himself glory will not and cannot fail. Which means people in this church have to be being people who are transformed. I want you to think about that. What is your attitude like then towards other people in this church? If everybody in this church who claims the name of Jesus is, not might be, not could be, not potential, is being transformed, how do you treat them? How do you think about them? How do you pray for them? How do you care for them? They are being transformed. God never talks about potentials. He talks about realities. I will save you. I have justified you. I have glorified you, is what Paul tells us at the end of Romans 8. These things are realities of what I have done and am doing and will do. And we as God's people need to lay hold of them. And that's not all that Paul is saying. Paul really is drawing this whole idea. He took us to the heights of love in that prayer and saying, I want you to be able to believe even this love that goes beyond what you can possibly comprehend. But you will need something that will enable you, and that is the power which comes from God to attain to that glory which belongs to Him. Jesus says something profound in John 17. He says, Father, the glory that You have given Me, I have given to them that they might be one. And that they might be perfected in unity. Why? Because as we do that, guess who gets the glory? God does. So what the Scriptures tell us is that God gives glory to the church because in doing so, He gets greater glory back to Himself. Which is, our chief end is what? To glorify God. God's chief end is to get glory. So we see the reality of that taking place. There is no end. There is no stop. God's glory will continue to go throughout the ages. And that's what Paul then says. He, he basically just... No English translation gets it completely right because Paul just kind of piles up words at the end saying throughout all generations, everywhere, everything you can possibly imagine, forever and ever and ever, eternity, ages, world without end, I'm in. I mean, that's kind of what he's saying. And see, in some ways, what I want you to see is this is a hope for us. See, this, is, this doesn't make you be a, a bad parent when you read things like this. It makes you desire to be a great parent. See, God's promised that the generations will roll in. So what mark do I want to leave on this generation? Do I want to grow little saplings? Do I just want to plant seeds? Or do I want to have a part in seeing oaks of righteousness grown up in the midst? See, God's promise throughout all generations, His, His glory will prevail in the church. I want my children to be a part of that glory. So I'm going to do my best to see to it that my children are growing up in that way. Do I fail? You betcha. Anybody who comes to my house will assure you that I am not the world's perfect parent. So let me just go ahead and move you out of ever coming to my house and going, gosh, she's not the perfect parent. I have no illusion. But I would venture to say that if I came to your house and watched you throughout the day, I'm sure I could write down a few things myself. What we want to be is people who are committed to one another and to one another's children that we want to see oaks of righteousness growing up in our midst. 
as, the, as Isaiah has promised. Your children will be oaks of righteousness. Generation upon generation, world without end, forever and ever. Amen. So are we willing to believe that? Are we willing to pursue that? Are we willing to be about that? Seeing one another growing up, watering, planting, teaching, preaching, and living, as Mike Alameda said, for those of you who were there on Friday night. This is, in conclusion then, the true God. And this power is at work within believers. I wonder if it's in work in you. And if you don't know, if you have heard this message and you go, you know what, I don't really believe that power is at work. I wish you'd come and see me. I'm staying after for the feast. I wish you'd come and sit down and let me talk with you. Or if there's somebody here you know that you know you've seen that power at work in them, please talk to them. Don't leave today without believing, without knowing the power of Christ at work within you. Here are a few things that I'd like for us as a church of believers to apply. The first thing from that idea of no limit is, I want us to begin to be a people who intercede for one another, who are not fault finders, but rather are God seekers. God, this person is struggling. Help me to pray well for them. I see it. Give me wisdom as to how I can come alongside them and love them and encourage them. Not accuse them, not belittle them, not berate them. How do I come alongside and love them well? No limit. He's able. We should also be praying for the salvation of others. No limit. He's able. There's nobody in the city of Tucson that is beyond God's ability to save. Not one person. So I don't care how bad the person that sits in the cubicle next to you is. He may be so close or she may be so close to salvation, you can almost taste it and touch it. I have found oftentimes people that are living the most debaucherous oftentimes are the closest because they are coming to their rope's end and realizing nothing satisfies. He's able. Doubt no more. No fear. I'll say the great words of the evangelist and missionary Kerry. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. May that be how we live. We expect great things from God. We are going to attempt great things for God. Some of the greatest things you'll do will be to really begin to say, I really am wicked in this way. And I really want to see this change. I really don't want to live like this anymore. And nobody else knows it but me. That takes great bravery. That takes great courage. It takes the power of Christ to convict you of it and to enable you to deal with it. No fear. No end. Do not just pray for temporal things. Pray for things that last. Pray for God's glory to be seen in the, in, to the world without end. Pray for people. Pray that God would extend His glory in this church's life. Pray big stuff. Don't pray, God, please help Aunt Iva lose hangnail. I mean, I'm even saying about some of the things we pray for that are really big, like Karen's father and his cancer. Let's not just pray for those things. Let's pray for the stuff like, God, would you make us a people that see big vision in the valley of Tucson? Would you help us to have a big vision and to really boldly go forth? Would you help us? Would you draw people into the midst of this place? Would you give us wisdom that far exceeds our ability to think? Would you do that? Let's pray for things that last forever. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.